We're taking our second to last lap around the Gospel of Mark. We start, started this study months ago, and we are now in Mark chapter 16, which is the final chapter in the Gospel of Mark. So if you turn there, uh, we'll look at it this week, and then a final sermon next week, and we'll conclude our study in the Gospel of Mark, which has been a joy to preach through. I hope you've learned some things. I hope that you have drawn closer to God. And as you're turning there, I'll give you just a a tiny disclaimer for this morning. I am actually going to be preaching from a borrowed Bible, which if you're a preacher, you know that requires a disclaimer because for whatever reason, you just get used to the Bible you preach from and you know where the words are on the page and it's just, it's, it's, it's just like a part of me. Um, but I, I need to use a borrowed Bible today because my Bible, I now realize is missing Mark chapter 16 from it. The page has, this is, this is just what happens. It's actually not my Bible. I had to apologize to my wife earlier because it's a Bible that I bought for her about 12 years ago and I've been preaching from it for the past 11 years. So it's actually her Bible. <laughs> and I share that disclaimer, one, to give me grace as if I stumble around the text kind of trying to get my bearings on where everything is. And second, it, it also serves as a very small picture of something that will lend itself to the story we're in. Because a, a Bible that gets worn out, as you have a Bible for a period of time, and you're learning and growing in Christ, and you're learning to read it, it goes from that fresh, brand new book off the shelf, and then as you grow in the Lord, your Bible gets worn out. And my Bible got so worn out that the, the pages are starting to fall out. And it's interesting that the Gospel of Mark, in my Bible, is missing the resurrection story. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And the reason it's worth looking at as a picture, because sometimes that's what happens in life. If you read the Gospel of Mark only up till Mark chapter 15, and we concluded our study with Christ on the cross, buried in the grave, and we didn't get to the end of the story, it would be a very confusing, sorrowful, and sad story that does very little to the audience that we are today. It's nice for what Jesus did in his time, but if he's hanging on the cross and, le and left in a grave, then it's a confusing story at best. And so it is, as your Christian life goes on, like a Bible, you get worn out in times, don't you? It's like you go through the life of following Jesus and you're fresh out of the joy of salvation and life gets hard and following Jesus gets sometimes confusing and the world throws its things at you. And for whatever reason, one of the tendencies is we lose the end of the story. The page falls out of your own story and you end at the only thing that you can see in front of you, which is hard and confusing and it stops making sense. And it's so important that we do not conclude the study of Mark without getting to Mark chapter 16, because without the resurrection, it all falls apart. And it's also important in your life, whether you're coming to seek Christ and try to make a decision about who he is in your life, or you're coming in need of renewal, there will be times in your life where you have to go back to the very beginning of the faith, which is, in fact, the resurrection itself. It's where it all begins and where it's where it all falls apart. And before we look at Mark, I'll share with you this tendency for us to lose focus on why we have any hope at all by losing focus on the end of the story, and it's not just a modern problem. 
It's not something that early Christians couldn't relate to. The Apostle Paul writes to one of the first churches in Corinth, and this is what he says. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith also is empty. There is no point in the gathering if Christ is in the grave or if Christ is still hanging on the cross. And there will be times in our life when we have to be reminded that it all starts and ends with the resurrection. That your faith depends on you believing that whatever you're going through right now, as bewildering as it may be, which is what we're going to look at this morning, the story post-crucifixion will be confusing, bewildering, and still sad, but it's not the end of the story. And so to your life, whatever you're going through right now, if you lose sight of the resurrection of Christ, our gathering, you listening to preaching, the faith that you have put into all of the other good things. He can be a wise moral teacher. He can be a miracle worker. He can be someone who did great things in the past. He can be a model to live your life at, but if he is not the living Christ, faith is empty. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at this story, which is really a reminder of all of our lives. We go through these hopeful, exciting times, and then we get met with disappointment, and we have to get the message of where all hope comes from. Today in Mark chapter 16, hope will be restored, and it will echo to today. And it is not just a moment in history. Hope can be restored right now for anyone no matter what you're going through, because of this very story. So we turn to Mark chapter 16. It starts in verse 1. It says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices and they might, that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So as is Often the case when we're studying the book of Mark, this introduction to the chapter is really a way for us to stand, understand the context of where the story has been. It says, now when the Sabbath was passed. So Jesus, in our last study, Mark chapter 15, has died on the cross. He's breathed his last. The centurion soldier looking at him says, truly, by the manner of which he died, this is the Son of God. And the sun is about to set. So they have, from the moment he breathes his last to sundown, to take his body off the cross and put it in the grave before Sabbath comes, which by custom they do no work. So now Sabbath is over. They, the sun is rising, and it is time for the women who desire to complete the job of honoring his dead body to resume. This also is a call to where the story left off with all of the disciples of Christ. They're nowhere to be found. We remember last week, the only people witnessing Christ hanging on the cross for the sins of humanity that were faithful to him were, in fact, these very women. And now they're going to continue in their devotion and faithfulness to serve him by anointing his body. And this, this little verse from Mark 16 is how we get a couple of traditions, that one of which we're practicing right now. One, it says, very early in the morning on the first day of the week. And so this is why we celebrate 
are gathering every week, Sunday morning. So welcome to Mark chapter 16, verse 1, first day of the week. We are, without always remembering it, we are honoring the foundation of our gathering, the first day of the week, and the first Easter, which is about to be the reality of the resurrection. This is the foundation of our gathering. It's not just Easter Sunday. Every Sunday morning is founded upon this moment in history when they walked into an empty tomb. The second tradition that we can draw from here, which doesn't take a lot of study, is it says that as the sun was rising, they came to the tomb. And the tradition that will flow from that throughout the centuries has been the sunrise Easter celebration. We did one as a church. The sun rises and we go at the dawn of the morning to celebrate the, the brightest day in human history, where the Good Friday was the darkest day. The sunrise represents the sunrise of all hope for humanity. And of course, we get our tradition slightly wrong because they were not coming with cinnamon buns. <laughs> they were not coming with acoustic guitars and trays for communion. They were not coming in their you know, Sunday morning best to take their version of a picture. They were coming with sorrow, sadness, and spices to anoint a dead body. So this allows us to remove any thought of predisposition that these people had, that they were just going to whistle their way down to the garden tomb, and Jesus was going to be waiting for them. They expected a resurrection as much as the modern people of our day expect a resurrection. What they actually expected was a dead body. And it says in verse 3, And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Another tell that they were not expecting an empty tomb, but they expected to see a tomb that was covered by a stone, a tombstone. And their question is both practical and profound. In the practical sense, to anoint a dead body, you must get into the tomb. They realized that there would be a stone, and they wondered how they would get it away. The profound part of the question is a question that hangs over every single one of our heads this morning. It is a question that is built into the human condition to think about what happens to life after death. It is a question of how to reconcile your own stone or tombstone. Who will roll away this stone of remembrance that every human has died and is buried in the ground? You've all wrestled with it. Every worldview has some shaping by the answer that it offers this question. And there's all sorts of answers that exist in our day, not unlike their day, and probably exists in our sanctuary. Some of you may look at the, the, the tombstones that await all of us. In a blink of an eye, you will have to reconcile what to do with your tombstone. Some of you may, as the trends of the culture continue, some of you may say, I'm not worried about the tombstone because once I go into the grave, I'm not coming out, I will cease to exist. And you may even hope that's true, but it just doesn't sit well with what the Bible says the eternity that is written on your heart. We all sense from a very young age that there must be something more to this life. Uh, some answers of the modern science will say, well, maybe we will science our way out of the tombstone. And there will be some sort of avatar that holds all of our memories inside of it, and we will live in the matrix until eternity, and 
Our best version of ourselves will be some sort of biopic cyclops. I hope that's wrong. And if that's what you're hoping for, I will be praying for you. That sounds miserable. And every worldview that answers with a religious lens will try to give an answer of the tombstone. Whether it is some sort of cycle of reincarnation and karma, whether it is some sort of good, dutiful work that you can present to the one who has the power to bring life after death. But what we find in this answer for the tombstone is that it is not a human feat. It says in verse 4, when they looked up, they saw that the stone had already been dealt with. The stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. Mark giving a detail to say the women didn't do it. It didn't roll itself away. And other gospel accounts, although none of them talk about the moment where Christ comes out of the grave, Matthew gives the detail that there was the ground shook and the stone was removed. And it is another reminder throughout this story that there are certain parts of the salvation story that lives inside of the empty tomb that belong to the hand of God only. The stone was already rolled away. It was not a human effort. It was something that God had ordained for this moment. And then it says, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in long white robes sitting on the right side and... In the understatement of the century, it says, and they were alarmed. <laughs> Imagine walking down to a garden tomb area. The stone is removed. You have the courage to walk through, and there is someone there with some sort of angelic resemblance waiting for you. And as always is the case where the audience of earth meets the interruption of heaven through a messenger of God, they're frightened. And time and time again, the message of Christ. And the plan of salvation for the world came from a heavenly messenger where heaven would invade earth to get God's proclamation across. When Christ was born, the heavens invaded with a host of angels and said to the shepherds, don't be afraid. When Christ was baptized, the heavens open up and a voice comes down and says, this is my son. When Christ was transfigured, the heavens open up and now, once again, the proclamation of heaven is going to be declared. And whenever heaven speaks to earth, there is a reminder inside of the human psyche that we are not worthy. And every heavenly messenger has to tell the audience, don't be afraid. And the message of not being afraid will come with a message of great news. Goodwill for men being fulfilled in this very moment. And in verse 6, it says, But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. And now three words that will change the direction of this story, these women's lives, the story of everyone who had hoped in Jesus, and the story of human history, including your own. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. From the very first Easter, there was a design of God to build into the history of this moment some eyewitness account with some evidence-based facts. See the place where they laid him. Another interesting part of the story is that the stone was removed not so that Jesus could get out. 
lest you think he was raised from the grave by the power of the Spirit and then knocking on the tomb trying to get out. It says in John chapter 20 that as the disciples were locked inside closed doors that Jesus appeared in their midst. In the glorified state, in whatever it looks like, beyond comprehension, Christ is not bound by physical constraints. The stone was rolled away so that the women could go in. So that the women who saw where he was laid in, verse, or in chapter 15 could now parallel that with where he is no longer laying in chapter 16. He says, he is not here. He is risen. This is the substance of all subsequent faith. Whether or not this is a moment in history, a reality of heaven meeting earth and God proclaiming victory over death informs everything else you believe and commit yourself to with Jesus. We have a steady decline in our country of people who are proclaiming Christ as Lord and Savior, and it is seen in church attendance on the steady decline year after year after year for the past 40 years. As our country gets more populated, our churches get less populated. But one of the days of the year, every year, where we're all reminded of the substance of our country being surrounded in a pursuit of Christ is the most populated church day every year, the most busy Sunday, the busiest Sunday for most churches, including ours, every year is Easter. Easter, where the substance of the faith is restored, where the people long to hear it again, where neighbors and friends and people you love are willing to come because without these three words, he is risen, there's no reason to come to church again. So they hear the message, and then they come back for next year, and we stick around in our dutiful service to the Lord and hope to grow and be sanctified by his word. But if we're not careful, these three words remain in some time in March and April for our lives as well. If we lose sight of this moment, the wisdom of Christ, the passion that God wants to put into your heart to live for Christ, anything you do in Christ's name without the reality of the resurrection of Christ in this moment will be an empty pursuit. He is risen. The shift of all of the story, and we see the shift now, it says in verse 7, so go and tell his disciples and Peter. Love the Gospel of Mark. It says disciples and Peter because by my best estimation, Peter has betrayed Christ so badly that he may not even consider himself a disciple at this point. So he sends the women to go find all the disciples to rally them up again and get Peter too because this is going to change the story. Because he is risen, it is time to get the disciples who have betrayed Christ and are living in fear, time to get Peter, who is going to be one of the main apostles to build the church, bring them back together. Because the story is not finished. And then he says, tell them that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Underline it in your Bible, just as he said to you. This little statement, just as he said, 
is a lesson that we need reminding of all of the time. We are blessed students of the Bible. We have biblical literacy like no generation before us. You have the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his promises and his goodness at your fingertips. But just like this story, when expectations turn into severe disappointment, the expectation of Christ as king, the disappointment of the cross, and a Sabbath day of darkness, sometimes all we need is to be reminded of what God already told us. You have your own versions. You hoped in God. You tried to live for God. Something happened in your life where it seems confusing and you're bewildered and you're wondering what the storyline is supposed to be. And you need to hear once again, believe in what he's already told you. He is coming again, just as he said. The dead in Christ will rise first, just as he said. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, just as he said. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and all the sorrow from our hearts, just as I said. Just as he said, but we sometimes feel like, in the middle of the story, are we so certain? You will meet Christ face to face. And all of the promises in Christ are already yes and amen, just as he said. And we have confidence that whatever promises have yet to be cashed in by his goodness and his faithfulness have a moment in history where all of us can look and say, if this one is real, all of the others can be trusted. If the storyline of the cross and the suffering of the Savior for the sins of the world to be laid on his shoulder and the wrath of God to be poured out and the Son of God himself laid into the grave was not the end of the story, but the beginning of glory, how much more are your stories that seem halfway? How much more will you need to hear just like he said? And then it says in verse 8, so they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Once again, the predisposition for this story was not, can't wait to see Jesus standing in translucent white at the outside of an empty tomb. Even after seeing the empty tomb, hearing the message from an angelic messenger and having a little bit of hope restored, it says they're afraid. But their fear is now paired with amazement. It says that they trembled and were amazed. And I think that might be the best description of living by faith unto eternity. There will be times in your life where if you're following Jesus, as he's calling you to do, through the narrow gate, difficult is the way, don't be surprised when you're persecuted and life gets hard, you will tremble, and God's faithfulness through the hard times of life and the suffering and the trials on the other side, you will be amazed at what God does. They trembled, and they were amazed, and then they go, and they say nothing. They walk away in utter, silent disbelief with joy and hope on the precipice of coming out of them. And this is the shift of the entire story of God interacting with humanity. It shifts in this moment. 
It is the shift of the story for these women and the disciples. It is the shift of the story for the ministry that Christ came to bring the kingdom of God. He will now, in a moment's time, pour out his spirit, start a church, and begin the invasion of the kingdom of God onto earth from this moment. And as the shift happens and they're trembled amazed, they give us a picture of what this looks like in your life. The power of the resurrection is the shift of your life. You can study Jesus, you can respect Jesus, you can come to church and hear about Jesus. But until you have a trembling, amazing moment with the reality of Christ conquering the grave and all of the implications that means for your life, you do not have a substance of your faith. Preaching is empty and your faith is empty. So I want to just briefly look at something we already read with the time that we have. Three things that flow from the empty tomb, the reality of the resurrection, into the substance of the faith of our lives. And to look at these things, we could give infinite examples of how the resurrection of Christ completely shifts anyone's life who puts their faith into it. But we'll look at three because these are three that come from the message of the angel. So we go back to verse 6. And we hear the first command of the message. It will now, if the resurrection is true, it will be not only a substance of your faith, it will be one of the primary commands of your life. When the angel says to them, do not be alarmed. In other words, don't be afraid anymore. And there are a few reasons for these women to hear that in their exact context of what they're going through. And I can sense that their reasons are the same as our reasons. One of the reasons for them to not be alarmed at the message, because the tomb is empty, they don't have to be afraid, is because they may have been fearful of just associating with Christ at all. Remember last week we just saw the person that they were following to the very end tortured and hung on a cross to be made an example of through crucifixion that anyone who followed him or tried to do likewise, bring a kingdom other than Caesar's into power, would be dealt with with death. His disciples for sure got the message because as was stated, they're sitting in an upper room locked behind closed doors. And these women now here don't be alarmed, and they can certainly receive that as people who were violating the warning. They saw where he was laid, and they were going to honor him at his tomb. But because the resurrection was a reality, and because the tomb was empty, they need not be alarmed. Because those who tried to stop Christ... The enemies of the mission, those in power that represented the world of Rome and those in power that represented the world of religion, the mob that turned on him, all efforts to silence Christ have failed if he rose again. And it's worth hearing that as a Jesus follower, as a student of the Bible that you are this morning, because one of the reasons you may be alarmed as you leave this place, and we sing this song, ready to do your will, Lord. Are you sure? 
You're ready to do the will of God in the culture that you live in? You're ready to stand up for the one way, one truth, one life of Christ? Who has a design for life and family and marriages and neighborhoods? And he has called you to be an ambassador with the expectation that if they persecuted him, they would persecute his followers? Ready to do your will, Lord. If Christ is in the grave, you have every reason to stay alarmed. Because what it means is those who silenced Christ 2,000 years ago will silence his followers now at any cost. And so you may be tempted if you do not have the substance of the resurrection in your heart's theology to just remain silent. Even in your best efforts to never betray him, the example of Peter is fresh out the press here. A little girl says, don't you know him? And he's like, I have no idea who you're talking about. I'm way too close to punishment here. Ready to do your will. Only ready to do his will. If you believe his promise. In this world, you will have trouble. Living for Christ will cost you. It includes a cross. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Those who killed me only empowered my salvation. They did not stop it. Take heart not to be alarmed as a Christ follower. Another reason that they could be alarmed, as we see throughout this story and into the, the, the early portions of the transition from Jesus running the ministry to the Holy Spirit using the disciples, a reason to be alarmed in this moment is all sorts of uncertainty. So they don't know what to say. They don't know how the stone is going to be rolled away. They don't know where the disciples are. And deeper still, they're not quite sure what to do with all of the hope that they had put in the Lord as the Christ until they hear that he's not in the grave. The answer to uncertainty in the times that they lived in and the times that we live in is to have an understanding of the rest of the story. Surely we live in uncertain times. We're called to live in somewhat uncertain times. To live by faith means you don't walk by sight. You're not going to understand every detail of how God is redeeming the world to himself and using your life to do so. You're not going to have all the details before you as a line-by-line -line item of what God is doing. You're going to have to trust in uncertain times there's something beyond uncertainty that is solid. And what is that thing? Well, Peter says this to a church in uncertain times. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to the abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope, not a circumstantial hope, not a hope of logic and reason, but a living, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because if Christ rose from the dead and he's the first fruit of all creation, and the same spirit that rose him from the grave is now freely poured out to anyone who believes, you now have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away. And that is the certainty in times of uncertainty. Uh, one of the reasons I was excited to share from the Gospel of Mark is because one of the first Christian commentaries I read on any part of the Bible 
was from Timothy Keller, his, his commentary on the Gospel of Mark called King's Cross. Now, nobody is perfect in the way that God uses their life is all his glory and our folly, but he certainly had some wisdom in his day, and he recently died just a few days ago. He went to be with the Lord. And so, of course, I've been thinking about just the impact that he had in my life and stumble upon a moment that he had for our encouragement of uncertainty. Someone asked him, as a pastor close to the end, what would you say to a generation of young Christians who look out to the future and all they see is uncertainty? And his answer is an answer for our time, is an answer for these women, is an answer for your life, and is an answer for all time. If Jesus rose from the grave, then everything is going to be okay. If Jesus conquered death and defeated sin and he could not be silenced or stopped, there's no amount of uncertainty that this world can throw at the kingdom of God that will ever thwart him. And it's worth pointing out another fear that these women may help us relate to. Sometimes lost in a story like this, we've heard it every Easter, you've read it as you read the Gospels. The angel says to them, do not be alarmed. And we, we lose sight of the fact of where they're standing. They're inside of a tomb. And we just think, oh, okay, that's an interesting part of the story. Have any of you stood inside of a tomb at dawn or dusk? Cemeteries are scary places, even now. I don't love walking through them, even knowing the hope of glory and the and the confidence I have that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world, there's just something about him that remind me that death has a sting. And in this tomb, an angel says, don't be alarmed. And one of the ways that we can be encouraged by the reality that Christ has defeated death is that we can have no fear in the face of death. Paul says the final enemy... The final enemy was not Caesar in Rome. It was not the Sanhedrin. It was not the centurions. The final enemy is death, and it is yet to be fully defeated. As was stated, it hangs over all of your heads. And yet we stand here proclaiming a theology of no fear of death. That includes your own death, and that includes the people that you're sitting to the left and to the right to, and the kids that we have in our Sunday schools. And you'd be lying if you didn't from time to time have the fear of your death or someone you loved hanging over your head. And yet today we say, don't be afraid. Why? Because death has been dealt its final blow. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death has been swallowed up in life by the fact that Christ raised from the grave and he offers us the same fate. And I share again just this moment of considering the life of Timothy Keller. His daughter shared a note that he left behind knowing that his time was come, his hour was close, and he le left a note to his family said, there is no downside for me leaving 
Not in the slightest. See you soon, Dad. When we consider what we believe in, if there is substance to our faith, it is this substance that we can look each other in the eye and, they, and say there is no downside when God takes us from these temporary tents and gives us a permanent dwelling in heaven. And we can say to the ones we love, there is no downside, none the slightest, and I will see you soon in Christ. So first we say do not fear. Secondly, we look at this. And the angel goes right from do not fear into you seek Jesus of Nazareth. An interesting title for Jesus, who we just looked at last week, anointed divine son of God, hanging on the cross, king of kings. And yet at the empty tomb, the angel smuggles in a very interesting reminder of who we're worshiping today. For the last time, except for one time when Paul tells his testimony and talks about Jesus of Nazareth as someone he was in opposition to, the name Jesus of Nazareth will be fully replaced. The angel says to the women, you're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, born in a manger, grew up in Nazareth, humble beginnings, humble vocation, powerful ministry, goes into the grave, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, fully man, comes out of the grave. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, fully God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, Jesus now declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How is he declared to be the Son of God with power? According to Romans, by the resurrection of the dead. This is the declaration that the coronation had a vindication. The story does not end with him hanging on the cross and being buried. If it does, go home and find a new hobby. He is not the king of kings or lord of lords. But if he walked out of the grave in newness of life, now holding the keys to heaven and hell, there is a supreme king like no other. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, I'm praying for you. I love your faith, and I'm praying that you would understand a depth of your faith. And then he includes that they'd understand the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. How do we know the power of God? Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him on high at his right hand in the heavenly places. And this is for our time. Fear not. Why? Because Christ sits far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name of that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. I love that phrase, far above. There has been an unfortunate trend in preaching over the last couple decades to take the gospel and make it sinner-savior-centric. So it would say, you're a sinner, you need a savior, good news, the savior has come, and you can be saved. Now, that is a message worth preaching, but it is not the center of the gospel. 
the very center core of the gospel, when Jesus, it says, came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, the center of the gospel is king and his kingdom. The reason we have to preach sinner and your savior is because the only way you get to be a part of the king's kingdom is if your sin is dealt with once and for all. The kingdom of God will have no sorrow. It will have no tears. It will have perfect justice and perfect love as the administration of the government, and there will be no unrighteousness. So for us to be part of the kingdom, we need to deal with all of the unrighteousness that plagues, plagues us in the name of sin. But the center of the message is the king is here. The true king. So you're not just a sinner in need of a savior. You are a person in need of a king. And we all in our sin have looked to all other things to be the object of our worship, and they have utterly let us down, and they themselves have an empty faith. But because Jesus leaves the grave, declared Christ the king by the power of the resurrection, we now have the definitive king of kings. There is no one who's close far above all principalities. So as we look around the times that we live in, and I keep preaching, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of the powers that be. Don't be afraid of the political climate and the jockey for position, the wars and rumors of wars and the rise of greed, the abuse of power from churches to governments. There is a king of kings that they will all answer to, and you're here to worship him now and to devote your life to him, which will be over in a blink of an eye, and you will meet him soon. And then finally, the angel says, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. The crucifixion is inseparable from the resurrection. He came to pay the penalty of the sin on the cross and to leave sin in the grave through the resurrection. Paul will go on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And what is a result of Christ not rising? Your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. You're still a slave to all of the shiny objects of the world that divert you from your purpose and your joy and will eventually pull you into your own grave of despair in this life and the life to come. But here's the good news, the gospel. Sin has been dealt with. The wrath of God against all ungodliness was poured out on the cross. And the penalty of sin, which is death, was paid for by Jesus. And this will be my last Tim, Queller, Tim Keller quote, but it says this. After a criminal does his time in jail and fully satisfies the sentence, the law has no more claim on him. And he walks out free. I'm grateful for those of you who are a testament of that in our own sanctuary, in our prison ministry. You did your time, and you got your, you got your sentence over with, and now you're a free person. Try to stay that way. But that's a picture of sin in the grave, because it says Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sin. That was an infinite sentence. But he must have satisfied it fully, because on Easter Sunday, he walked out free. The resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full 
right across history so that nobody could miss it. We stand under the banner of God's grace and there is no condemnation in Christ. The sin that tries to plague you and pull you outside of the presence of God and shame you and tell you that you are not worthy and that you have to live your life according to your own plans now, it is all an echo of a lie. Your sin has been paid in full on the cross of Christ and the resurrection is God's stamp over your heart. No condemnation. We come here every Sunday on the foundation of these things. Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday, three things. Don't be afraid. Christ reigns. Sin doesn't. Because of the resurrection, we have no fear because Christ reigns in our hearts, in our churches, and in this world, and sin does not have hold on us. And then we proclaim our victory and our hope and our confidence in Christ and Christ alone when we take communion. And so we're going to take that now. If you would, stand, and the ushers are going to pass it out. If you've never taken communion, you basically just came to Easter Sunday morning, so this is a great time to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior and the King of your life. If you'd like to do that, if you'd like to stand on the promise because of the resurrection, you can live with no fear. Christ can reign in your life, and you can overcome sin and death itself. Then make the decision to do that today and hold that cup in your hand. And take that bread off the plate. And it is a picture of you accepting Christ. And for the rest of us, it is the substance of our faith that we will hold in our hands. Hold on to it, and then I'll come up here and we'll, we'll take it together. <laughs>